Uh, today we're, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, so you can flip there while I start talking so we don't waste time. Um, I tend to do that, my wife says. So let's not waste time. Turn to Matthew 5, 27. Uh, we're going to be speaking on the passage where Jesus discussed sexual lust. And um, I brought a, I just quickly have a couple things uh, out on the, <clears throat> the welcome table. I, I printed out an article from the Gospel Coalition on the nine things you should know about pornography and the brain. Um, and it's very interesting. It, it goes into the psychology of it and actually uh, attributes some of it to, to a form of like a drug almost. Um, so it's very interesting to read that. Uh, I used a couple of these books. And I'm only adding some resources for you also. And, and, you know, we're all in sexual beings, and we all have the fight. So this one's a really good one. It's called Hide or Seek. It's fairly new. Uh, when Men Get Real uh, with God About Sex. Uh, it's actually got a, real, a lot of good gospel principles in there. And then this one's an old book called False Intimacy. It's written by a Christian psychiatrist. And uh, this person deals with sex addiction. So it's very fascinating, good stuff in there. And, of course, sex always has to do with marriage. Kathy Keller and Tim Keller uh, have a ministry in New York. It's a really good book. So, anyways, uh, I want to thank Mike. Uh, I'm the youth director here, and he served with us for two and a half years, and uh, it's just been a blessing. That being said, he's leaving. I really need another youth leader. So, if anyone would like, be willing to work with middle schoolers as faithfully and as good as Mike has, you, I'm signing you up. Come see me after the service. Uh, we could use you. Um, also, the last thing before I actually start my sermon. Um, Acts for Youth has partnered while I came up. Really appreciate that ministry. That ministry, I used to work for them a couple years ago before I came full-time here. And they, they are just loving kids in this community. That's part of a vision of our church. They love the kids from Govins and the kids from Penn Lucy. All right, and they're, uh, they're in Walter P. Carter and Guilford, and they work with girls and boys now. And we, as a youth group, have partnered with them this year. So on Thursday nights, they come. It's actually really cool. Plan is in here with their kids, and they're doing the learning center. So we've got a group of kids there, and then we have another group of kids with actual youth that are in the basement. And one of the things Wale was asking uh, up here was just that they really need some help with anybody who would love to cook. So if we have anybody who, who loves to, to make food for a lot of hungry boys... Uh, Acts for Youth could really use you. You don't have to do it every week, but if you'd be willing to do it one week or sign up, Wale's got a table out there, and he'd love for you to do that. So we appreciate you guys, Wale. Thanks a lot. All right, let's, let's turn our focus now to the Scripture today. Verse 27, we're in chapter 5, and Jesus is speaking to us. We're going to hit some background after we're done. Jesus says these words, verse 27, You have heard that it is said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We just pray that as we encounter your word here, that we would learn and that your Holy Spirit would work on our hearts, that when we struggle with lust or emotional or sexual uh, fantasies, that, Lord, you would conquer us and that you would move us to something more beautiful. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. 
When I was 10 years old, I grew up in the area. I went to a church called Grace Fellowship Church up in Timonium. And I'm from the Baltimore County area. And I was a kid who was not a Christian. I grew up in a Christian home, but I, I, it, it wasn't my faith, really. Uh, I was forced to go to church. Any, anybody resonate with that? Uh, keep your hands down. You're not supposed to raise your hand to that. <laughs> Some of you are here today. You're like, yeah, I'm, I'm forced to listen to you right now. So, so I was at church. I was forced to go. And there's a point in the church where the pastor gets up to preach, and that's usually when I started to doze off. Don't do that today, please. And uh, as that happened, the pastor came up. It was Pat Goodman. Some of you might know him. I'm really good friends. I grew up with his son, Josh. And he brought somebody with him. And I wasn't dozing off at this point because this is different, right? When people throw you off, you kind of stay awake. And he brought a man up, and he had glasses, and he was a little bit of a, a skinnier man, probably in his 40s. And I remember paying attention, and he, Pat had his arm around him and, and gave him the microphone, and he shared what we call testimony. If you're a kid in the room, you don't know what a testimony is. That's just when somebody shares their story, sharing a story about their life of, of overcoming something or something that was hard, and they had to get through it. And he started to share a story, and as I was listening, I realized he was sharing a story about how he had an addiction to pornography. Now, what's pornography? Pornography, and, and I'm making this for a kid's term, pornography is when people look at other people naked and fantasize about them and try to control them in their fantasies. It's a place where you become in control and you watch people undress themselves. And so I was really confused. This guy started sharing how this really destroyed his life. His wife left him. It started affecting his job. And uh, the wife took the kids and she pleaded with him to stop this, but he couldn't stop. And I said, man, this is really confusing. As a 10-year-old, I'm thinking, why is that so destructive? How could, why would he do that? That doesn't make any sense to me. And so that brings us today to the passage. Why is Jesus using such hard words? Why is Jesus coming at something that seems so innocent in some ways? It's just a fantasy world. It's just, it's just something we do inside our heads. We're not really hurting anybody. Why is he so hard on this? And this is the discussion we call sexual lust, or I'm going to call it emotional or sexual lust. So as we go back to the passage, look at verse 27, and we'll see this. He starts out, <clears throat> You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, before we get into text, I want to set up the background. I like giving you a scene. It's much more easy to pay attention. Jesus is starting a ministry here. He's in chapter 5. We call this the Sermon of the Mount. And so what happened was Jesus in chapter 4 was going around. He was healing people. He had a healing ministry. And he was teaching in the synagogue. And he started to get a lot of people to follow him. And it's very interesting, and I found this important for me, preaching to a very diverse congregation, that the people he attracted. And so if you look at the end of chapter 4, into chapter 5, you realize that Jesus had people from Syria. Very interesting. So they were not Jewish. He had people from Decapolis. They were Roman. Okay. He had people from uh, uh, Jordan, it said, and Jerusalem and Galilee. They would all be Jewish. Now, so there's different ethnicities in the room, okay? There's di or at the, on the side of the mountain where Jesus is uh, doing his teaching. But not only is there different pe people or ethnicities in the room, there's different eco economic statuses in the room. There are people there who are so sick and, and had to come to Jesus to get healed. He was doing a healing ministry. Well, I don't know about you, but people that are that sick usually don't have employment, do they? They're usually pretty poor, and they usually have a lot of bills because they're always trying to go to different doctors or different things going on. So these people, I would argue, are not poor. 
But then you also have people who follow him from the synagogue. And that would be your more middle class and upper class people who could tithe and be a part of the synagogue culture. And so you have here a multicultural, multi-economic audience. Well, that gives me hope because that's what I'm looking at right now. But it also brings us to this point. It means that when Jesus went to go do his teaching here, he knew his audience and who he was talking to, and that gives us hope. Why? Because it speaks to all of us. Every one of you is a sexual being. Sex is not just a thing that men enjoy. It's a thing that women enjoy. It's a thing that all children that grow up will learn and have desires and enjoy. Or they will be single and they will not have uh, those things in the context of a marriage, maybe, but they still will have the attraction because everyone has that natural attraction. So that's very important because as we see Jesus ends uh, in the Sermon on the Mount that he's really trying to build, the kingdom of heaven is coming, he says. And so what he's saying is we're going to make a kingdom culture. So we're going to speak to all these different cultures, different ethnicities, different economic status, and we're going to make one kingdom culture. And so he comes to us, and it's really important, I think, to hear that because it resonates that this doesn't just apply to a certain group. I've heard that said. Um, I've actually, if I can be blunt here, I've actually had kids say to me, oh, sex before marriage, that's a white person thing. Well, that's racist, okay? That's not true, that's degrading, and that is, is actually not what the Bible says at all. Uh, the Bible says it's for all of us and part of God's kingdom culture. Now let's go down to verse 17 and 18, back up real quick. Jesus is beginning to do something on this sermon that he's giving and teaching. And what he's doing here is he's, um, he's trying to hit all aspects of life, or a, a lot of aspects of life, I should say. And so he wants to say, we look at things through the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets, he says in verse 17 and 18. And he upholds that. He says, this is good. These are things. However, you don't see it correctly. And so I'm going to revisit these things, and we are going to look at them in a new light. And that's what he's really doing today. And so that's why he opens. He says, you have heard that it was said. Right? Where do we hear that? We heard that in the Old Testament. You've heard that it was said. Now, I want, a couple, I want to address a couple of things before I get into the actual text. We're going to hit it. It's only four verses. We'll go through it quickly. But I want to address a couple things that I think are common questions when this text gets brought up. Is sex a bad thing? Do Christians think it's a bad thing? Okay, is the Bible saying it's a bad thing? Well, I can answer quickly, no. I want to bring you to a couple, couple verses. Um, the Bible starts out in the second chapter with this amazing, beautiful imagery, right? Uh, Genesis 2, Adam and Eve finally meet, right? God made Adam first, and then Eve comes on the scene. And God, Adam, and Eve are all in this, this area. And what happens? He sings, a, he sings kind of a song or his poem. It's a bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, right? And, and, and at the end of it, it says they were both naked and they became one flesh. So, so chapter 2 of the Bible starts out with a R&B sex scene, right? It's like, a, it's, it's basically this, this, this a beautiful picture of, of a man seeing his wife and she's standing before him and he's just singing praises over her and he's in awe of her and they're naked and they're unashamed and then they come together. That's just the beginning of the Bible. So we go to uh, you know, Proverbs 5 up there. You see, you see that the man who's talking in Proverbs 5, he's saying that he enjoys his wife's body. Well, the principle is the same, right? A woman, you can enjoy your husband's body. 
It's, it's the principle of the scripture there. It's just that we were made to enjoy each other's body. Uh, uh, you look at Song of Solomon's a book, right, in, in the Old Testament, and, and this, it's really this romantic book with deep imagery. I mean, if it's translated uh, very, very um, accurately, it's almost too graphic, uh, so the English kind of tones it down a lot, but um, maybe because we'll get too excited when we read it or something, but... But what happens is that it's just this woman and this man, and they're in love, and they're talking to each other in these romantic ways. And it's really fascinating because, you know, one of the backward things that I think in our culture sometimes uh, is that you think that sex is just like for men, and men are the sexually driven ones. But it's funny, the Bible tells you the very opposite because the woman is the one who initiates in Song of Solomon. She's the one who pursues, and she's the one who is uh, showing her attraction to the man. She goes and looks for him, and she's... And, and so there's just this, there's this awesome thing that God just made us sexual human beings, and it's a good thing. And, uh, and then the last one I want to hit, there's, there's a bunch of verses on sex in the Bible, but the last one, just for the sake of kind of making a point of sex being good, is in 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is talking to a church he made in, uh, that he planted in Corinth. And Corinth was like the most sexual city in the Bible, uh, they had these religions back then that people would actually go to temples and they would, uh, they would engage in these, these sexual worship uh, things. And that came a lot out of the Greek culture there, but Rome had taken over at this point. And so he's there and he's talking to this church, well, he's writing to this church, email, you know, they had that back then. Um, and he's talking to this church and what happens is he says in verse 7, and this is really good to understand this, that people in that culture, only men only married because they wanted to have legal children. So what do I mean by that? They married because not, for, not to be one with somebody and have their, their sexual and emotional unified feelings done with one person, but really just so that they could have legitimate children that are legal. And so the woman was looked at as second class and something to just possess for that side thing. And they got a lot of their sexual uh, fantasies that were going on in their hearts and heads done outside of marriage. So Paul says very clearly there, he says, not only is the woman's body belong to the man, but he reverses it and, keeps, and makes it equal. And he says, but the man's body belongs to his wife. And so what he was doing there was very culturally different. You see that? The, the Bible makes it very, sex is a very equal thing. It's done with, with, with a man and a woman in the confines of marriage. We'll get to that in a minute. And it's, it's a beautiful, good thing. But that wasn't Paul's main point. Paul's main point, if you keep looking at it in, in verse 4 and 5, is that when you get married and you have sex, you need to do it often. Yeah, the Bible actually tells us, Paul says, have lots of sex. So there are three things the Bible says, and some of you are like, hmm, never heard that from the pulpit. Uh, I was laughing with Lisa last night. I was like, what if nine months from now we have a lot more children? Would that be my fault? <laughs> so... So there are three things to, why, to what sex is good. Sex does these three things in the Bible. Sex is enjoyable and it's serving. Sex is enjoyable and it's serving. It's really, it's, it's in, a, in the biblical understanding, it's I point my finger at my spouse and say, I want to serve you. And she points back at me and says, I want to serve you. Often when we look at sex in the world, it's a finger pointing at myself. Serve me, Right? 
it is meant to be enjoyable and serving. And one of my mentors who, who was here, Arnie Arnold, he said it one time to me, I thought it was really, it, it, sex is one of the only things, I don't know about the only, but it's one of the only things where you can serve somebody completely and be served at the same time. And it's interesting how God made it that way. It's a beautiful dance of love. Number two, so sex is enjoyable and serving. Number two, sex is emotional and unifying. Sex is not just a, a physical thing. It's an emotional and a unifying thing. It's meant to bring people together. And number three, sex is meant to be done often for the, healthiness, for the healthiness and for the holiness of the marriage. That's what the Bible says. Now, there are probably other things that the Bible says about it, but those are the three that we're covering for today. But it still brings us to another point. Why marriage? Why can it only be done in marriage? Um, there's, two, there's two verses in the Old Testament. So Jesus starts out, he says, You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. The Old Testament word for adultery uh, would really be found in Exodus 20, 14, and uh, Malachi 2, 14, and 16. But uh, you don't have to look those up. But, but what it's really saying is this, is that it's a positive, I want to put a positive spin on it. Sex is supposed to be done in a covenant. Okay, that's kind of what we're talking about. It's supposed to be in a covenant, or, and, and that sounds like an archaic word. What do I mean by archaic? It's kind of like an old, old word. Come on, be more modern. Um, there's no other word to really describe that. So kids, what does covenant mean? It means to have an agreement with somebody that's legal and emotional. So when you do that, what you're doing is you're saying, I'm all of yours no matter what. I'm all of yours no matter what. I am stuck with you is what it's saying. Now, I say those words because that sounds really scary to our modern Western world. We don't like to commit to a whole lot of things. So when you say you're stuck, that sounds like, oh, help me get out, right? Let's just inch our way into this marriage thing. Um, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says actually jump into it recklessly in a way to where you give all of yourself to somebody. And it's all of you to somebody. That's what a covenant is. Now, the opposite of that, and, and, and this is where we're going to do a parallel in, in why we can see why this marriage thing is actually a beautiful setup by God is what we'll call the consumer relationship. So we have the covenant relationship that I just described to you, and the other one is the consumer relationship. Now, what's a consumer? It's someone who always takes. Someone who always wants things and takes. So the consumer relationship is really um, saying that you're always on the market. I'll give you an example. So I have kids in, in youth ministry that are dating, and some of them are in their 20s now that are they're out, and I still talk to them, and they'll share things like, I'll say, hey, how's it going? You know, you got a girlfriend? Well, yeah. Uh, you got a boyfriend? Yeah. Um, okay, cool. Uh, yeah. How's that going? It's great. Uh, who are you talking to right now? They'll be texting while they're talking to me, right? We're always multitasking in this generation. Um, oh, this, this girl. Is that your girlfriend? No. Well, what's going on here? Well, what's going on after I kind of probe and start talking to them a little bit longer? I realize they're not cheating on their girlfriend or boyfriend, per se, but they have people they talk to on the side. And what it's really doing is it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a uh, this is actually a lot more common than you might think. It's, it's, it's really saying, I'm committed to this person until, the, until it goes bad, right? I'm, I'm in this until I kind of say I don't want to be in it anymore. And so what you've done is, if you start using sex in that relationship, what you've done is you're doing it in a way where you're saying, I want your body, but I don't want all of you. 
And what the Bible really says is that sex was never designed to be that way. It was never meant to be that way. Sex was always done to be a way of how we share all of ourselves with somebody. And think about it this way. When you're having sex with somebody, you get completely naked. Right? You're so vulnerable. You're showing all of yourself to somebody. And that's a symbol for what you do in a marriage. You're giving all of yourself, all of your economics, your money. Lisa didn't get a whole lot there with me, uh, being a youth pastor and all. <laughs> but, you know, you, you give all of your emotion, all of your thoughts that you have, that you, you share together. You're not sharing that with everybody else. It's only there. And then sex is this one thing that you only share there, Right? But when you do it in a consumer way, what you're saying is that I'm, I'm using you in a way. I'm, I'm not buying into this all the way. Now, now let's, let's give some argument real quick. Uh, I'm making the consumer sound all bad, right? It's not in a sense because there's a lot of consumer relations, what I would call consumer relations, right? They, they go out, they pay for each other, they share things, they have a cordial relationship. But I will argue this, that at the end of the day, there is, there's always something going on in the back of their mind could it get better? Is there something out there that's better? When you sign up to get married and you make it a legal relational covenant, what you say is, I, I, if there is something out there better, I, I'm stuck because I have loved this person in a way where I say, I'm not going anywhere ever. Do you see the difference? You can't do that if you don't do marriage. It's real cut or dry here. I, I want to give you something. I read this in a um, New York Times magazine. It was in 2012, and it was... Uh, it was titled, The Downside of Cohabitating Before Marriage. And it was written um, by someone in the New York Times, and they took uh, research from a University of Virginia research that did a study on cohabitating and seeing uh, uh, if, if it actually, and what is cohabitating for children in the room? Cohabitating is when people live together. And so what the, the article was about was people who live together before they get married, and they try to see if this works, try to, try to feel it out and see if this is a good idea or a bad idea. Let's see how loud you snore at night, right? So, so you're kind of like, um, you're going into this, these people, and they're trying to think this. When the article said, <clears throat> the article said this, that they discovered that there actually was more of a chance that people got divorced after cohabitating and then getting married. And I just talked to a lady in the last service, and I mentioned this, and she, she was a professional psychiatrist. She came up, she said, there's way more data that supports it now than there was back in 2012. So, so what am I saying? If you're, co if you're here and you're cohabitating right now and you're living with somebody and you're sleeping with them, I'm not saying that you don't have a shot. Or if you did that and then you got married, I'm not saying that you're doomed. That's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, right? Some of you are like, praise God. All right. All right. Uh, uh, you're not I'm not saying that. What I'm my point here is that if you think you're being smart by doing that, that the research shows that it actually doesn't help at all. It actually has a worse outcome, Right? That's why I share that. So, <clears throat> so, so why? Uh, why does it have a worse outcome? I get, and back to my argument. Because you never really bought in. The, the article in the New York Times said that they found out that people's relationships from just living together kind of in a partnership versus a marriage, the expectations changed tremendously. And people weren't ready for it. So here, here's the wisdom, I think, from this. And the article even said it at the end. Uh, the wisdom is this, is that you don't get ready for marriage by living with somebody. You get ready for marriage by being single and preparing for marriage. Okay? 
So how are you making, if you're single in the room, how are you, and you're, let's say, okay, you're single in the room, you're called to not get married, that is a blessing, the Bible says. That's awesome. Do that. If you're living in the room and you're single, and, or if you're living, if you're in the room and you're single and you want to get married, how are you preparing yourself to be a good spouse? How are you starting to think about how am I going to be a loving, good person to be married to? Okay? But this still brings us to another question. Uh, so I get the beauty that I was just, you know, I'm trying to describe the beauty of what the Bible says about sex. I try to compare the consumer versus the, the whole marriage thing. But, but, but why else is this really kind of a thing only for marriage? And, and I'll sum up this. It just gets dangerous outside of marriage. It doesn't get any harder to understand than that. It just gets dangerous. The Bible is very clear about that. And I think what we'll see here in a minute is just very clear about that. Let's go back to the text now. We're going to look at it. We're going to look starting 28, 29, 30, okay? <clears throat> but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, cut, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. I want to go over a couple key words in this passage that help us understand it. And the first one is the word lust or lustful. All right? The word lust or lustful in the Greek, I'm not going to be able to pronounce that. I can barely speak English. All right? Uh, but, but what it means in this greater definition is really it's, it's a longing for it. It's a strong desire or to covet. So it's somebody that has strong desires or to covet. Now, I want to take that understanding of the word lust and we're going to really apply it to adultery, right? So what is Jesus really saying when he says, you know, if you look at a woman with the desire to covet her, right? Or you look at a man to desire to cover her, both emotionally or sexually, right? What are you doing? This is what you're doing. You're creating a fantasy world where you're in charge and you're trying to control everything. And so Jesus is trying to fight that because he's, he's warning us of the danger here, okay? That's very important to get. But, but before we move on, I want to make it really clear in the room that he's not saying that if you're attracted to someone, you've done this. You see, the desire and the coveting is strong language. You all have natural attractions. I don't want you to, I deal with this with a lot with, with um, kids who grow up in the church. They just, they hear this verse and they get so convicted. I saw somebody today and I thought they looked really pretty. That's natural. That's okay. All right? Uh, what I want to get to is if your heart continues to think of those people and you're trying to control them to do things in your head with fantasies, that's what Jesus is addressing. Okay? He's not saying, do you have a natural attraction to somebody? Kill that. Right? We already saw that the, the Bible says sex is beautiful, it's good. Right? It's natural, uh, but, but done wrongly, it has consequences and can be scary. And it starts, it doesn't just start as a, as a physical thing, right? It, it starts with a looking, which we're going to talk about in a second, and a heart thing. And those are the next words I want to talk about. There is a theology here of the eyes. He says, you've heard that you've, uh, you've heard that it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you what, that if you look, you look. Flip over to the next chapter 6 and look at verse 21. Let's read that real quick. 21. Jesus says this. He's still teaching. He's still in his teaching on his sermon. He says this. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The what? The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Jesus is saying, your eyes are directly connected to your what? Your treasure, your heart. They, they work together, and you can't separate them. So how you look at people is how you see them in your heart. And how your heart is being exposed is how you're looking at people. Look over, go back, uh, back to chapter 5, go to verse 8. Go back to the Beatitudes. Jesus starts the sermon. What does he say? Blessed are the what? The pure in heart. For they will what? They will see God. There it is again. Your heart and your sight are always connected, Jesus is saying. How do you see God? You have to have a pure heart. How do you get a pure heart? Well, you don't do it from fantasizing and subjecting people. And we'll talk more about that in a second. Your heart is connected. Think of, uh, think of this. In Luke 7, Jesus, Jesus is with a guy named Simon. And Simon is a Pharisee. He invited Jesus over to eat after he did a teaching at a synagogue. And they're there, and they're having a big, big meal, and there's other people around. And what they used to do is they had like, people gather around, kind of like it was uh, reality TV back then. right? You've got to listen in on like a real show. And people would discuss, all these theologians would discuss... And Jesus got invited, and this woman, who was a known prostitute in the community, she comes in, and she just goes straight to Jesus. She wasn't invited. She just crashes this party, right? And she just starts crying all over the place, crying. And she takes her hair, and she starts wiping Jesus' feet. And, and there goes this story, and Simon is just like, this woman has just totally ruined my party. What's going on here? Does Jesus even know who this person is? And it's very interesting. There's, a, there's words in there connect to the, the theology of our eyes. He looks at Simon, he says, Simon, what does he say, what does he say to Simon? Somebody, Simon, do you see this woman? Duh, everybody saw this woman. She came in the room, she's, she's, she wasn't invited, she's crying, she's going over the place. She is the attention of the party. We all see her, Jesus. So why does Jesus say such a dumb question? Because he knows Simon doesn't really, what, see her. You see how your eyes are connected? Jesus is doing the same thing he did with Simon there he's doing with us when he's preaching this text. He's saying, you see things wrongly. You see things wrongly, and I'm going to help you take the log out of your eye. So there's three things here. Well, for, the eyes are meant for beauty, guys. The reason Jesus can see that is because Jesus' eyes are just full of people. They're full of compassion and beauty. And when you think of how Jesus looks at you, when you understand the gospel, he looks at you in such delight. He looks at you in such love. And then you compare your eyes to how we see most people. You just think, wow, Lord, help me see. Help me see. Your eyes were made for beauty. That's why when you go to the if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, I, I have never been. I imagine that you stare at it for a while. It's just beautiful, right? It's art, right? When you go to a museum and you see the beautiful, beautiful pictures, you stare at them. Why? Because your eyes were made for beauty. You weren't made to look at things that are, that are nasty and broken and disgusting, although our eyes see that all the time, right? They were made for beauty. And you look at a sunset and it goes down. You just stop sometimes. Man, that's beautiful, right? Your eyes were made for beauty. It's really important to understand in order to get this passage. But there are three reasons I'm going to give you to recap here why 
sex is made for marriage, and that is this. Number one, when you start to create fantasies in your heart, whether they be emotional or lustful, what you do is this. You start to have those desires change, right? And the only way the desires can change is if we start looking at things differently. But the desires grow in you, and this is what happens. When the desire grows so strong in you with those fantasies and the desires, you want it even if God tells you no, and you have to kill him to get him out of your way. You have to do away with God. Make up your own God. Or just no God at all. That's the first thing you do. The second thing you do is you dehumanize people. When you stare at people wrongly like that, and your heart sees them wrongly, that's what you're doing. That's what sin is doing. And when you sum that up, you're really breaking what? The two great commandments. Honor, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And what else? Love your neighbor as yourself. You've broken them both right there, me and you, when we look at people like that. But this is the last one, and this is a third one. You destroy yourself. When you do this, you destroy yourself. You gaze at ugliness for so long, and you think it's beautiful, that it just eats you up. And this is exactly what I found out when I was 10 years old about that man I heard. When he shared his story, and I was confused, and I didn't understand how did pornography do that, it's because he allowed his fantasies to get so crazy that he was willing to lose his wife, not love his, his neighbor, and his kids. And he found himself in what the, what the text calls hell, which we call, the, Jesus, the real Greek word here is Gehenna. And it was an actual place in Jerusalem, south of Jerusalem, that was a dump that you took uh, trash and dead animals to go be uh, lit on fire. Now think of that imagery that Jesus uses. They knew what he was talking about. And what he's really saying is when you continue down this path of looking this way, and when you continue to fester or grow these desires, whether they be emotional or sexual, what you do is you start to become the waste and the death that needs to go to places to be burned. Because that's all you'll be left to do. That's, that's all the good that will be left in you. So how do we beat this? Let me give you a couple quick stats real quick, just just. I didn't want to do this long, but um, so pornography, right? That's kids. That's when people look at people undressing themselves and getting naked in front of them, and they do it in a way where they like to control and watch and have fantasies about them. Among children between the age of eight and sixteen, ninety percent of them have viewed pornography. Surveys show that fifty percent of Christian men and twenty percent of Christian women are addicted to pornography. Uh, romance novels that include pornographic writing make up 55% of the mass market fiction sexually dis- uh, of, of fiction sold. Psychiatrists are increasingly concerned that romance novels and are emotionally sexually disturbed are, are distorting the way women view relationships. This is just like we said earlier. This is this is a, we're all sexual beings. This isn't just for men. Okay, women, you need accountability and help in this area too. Uh, the other scary part about that, all those stats are about 10 years old. So it's probably a lot worse now. Infidelity, percentage of marriages that are both spouses admit uh, infidelity or, uh, uh, either in a physical or emotional way is 41% of marriages. And only 31% of them make it after that. 
Uh, when asked if they could have an affair and get away with it, not get caught, 74% of men said they would, 68% of women said they would. Where is this? Where is all this coming from? Where's our hope that we can beat this thing? It seems to be everywhere. Uh, Jesus brings us back to the text and his strong language, I'm hoping that makes more sense here, is uh, he basically says there's a practical way, but then the Bible, the whole Bible read together, gives us an ultimate way. So the practical way, right? Jesus says it's better that what? That you cut your hand off and God, you know, take your eye out. Well, it's, he wasn't talking literal, thank God, right? <laughs> be a lot of people, the next passage would be like, and lots of people left with their hands cut off and eyes gouged out, right? Thank God it's not in the Bible, so we know that we're not really supposed to physically hurt ourselves, if anybody didn't know that. Um, but what he is saying is this, you might need to get rid of your smartphone. You might need to get a dumb phone because you can't help but watch stuff on there that you're not supposed to be watching. You might need to... Uh, put something on your computer. I know that I have covenant eyes on my computer, and my wife's my accountability partner. And she's never looked at pornography in her life, which is pretty amazing. And I don't want to be the first person to introduce her, so that's a good accountability partner for me. Uh, it might be that you need to get something that just blocks it completely. These are the practical ways to fight this. You know why? Because some of you have filtered, have put this in your heart so much, it's out of control. It's out of control. They talk about a lot in these books that people do this at work. They can't control themselves. It is getting out of hand. It's dangerous. So this is my first thing, and there's other ways to do that. And, and men's groups at churches, women's groups, you need to talk to each other. Uh, you might need to go down a different hallway if you're working at work and there's somebody that you like there because you emotionally connect with them better than your husband or because they look better than your wife to you or you can't stop thinking about them. Uh, you might need to take a different way. But here's the ultimate way that we conquer this. All right, those are just, those are just kind of the band-aids. The ultimate way is that your eyes were meant for what? They were meant for beauty. But what you and I have done is we have gazed our eyes on something that is not beautiful. And we've called it beautiful. And Jesus says the only way you can do that is if you replace it with something more beautiful. That's what we call Repentance. Repentance is, you know, hear a lot of times is turning one way. You know, you're going this way, you turn the other way, and you start going that way. Repentance here is you're looking at one thing and you're calling it beautiful, and you need to stop, say that's ugly, and turn and say this is what's beautiful. And the only way you can do that is if there's something that is actually more beautiful. When I was in college, uh, when I was struggling with pornography, and my uh, my wife and I were dating. And it was hard to keep our hands to ourselves because we liked each other, you know. Uh, this passage just was something I prayed through a lot. Micah chapter 7. And uh, you, do we have it up there? Good. It says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. What is he doing? He's looking. I will wait for the God of my salvation and my God will hear me. And this part, I always felt like I was speaking to Satan at this part. Rejoice not over me, my enemy, for when I have fallen, I shall rise. And when I sit in the darkness, stop right there. He, what is he doing? He's waiting on God. He's not doing anything. A lot of us, when we struggle and we fall, we've got to get moving. We've got to become an activist. We've got to do something, right? I've got to get this program and that program. I'm going to join this men's group, and I'm going to conquer this thing, right? Notice the Bible. 
When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. God's doing all the work. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until what? Until he pleads my case and executes judgment for me. Where did God do that? At the cross of Jesus Christ. And listen to this, man. We will bring, he will bring me out into the light and I shall what? I shall look upon the vindication. What's that word mean, children? That's when God makes you right in his sight. That's when God has redeemed you and made you right. And the best, the ultimate climax of that in the Bible is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what's beautiful. And you want to hear something? When I was going through this and I was trying to just have a devotional as preparedness, I went over in a verse, chapter 27 of Matthew, Jesus is hanging on the cross and everyone's mocking him. And there's this verse there. This verse is beautiful. Turn there, actually. Uh, they're mocking him. He's hanging on the cross. And they're basically kind of playing with him to say, like, where is your God now? And it says in verse 43, he says, he trusts in God. They're mocking Jesus. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he what? If he desires him. We talk about lust because it's a desire. It's something that we want. Jesus became unwanted on the cross so that God would possess and want you. God looked down on him and Jesus looked up at him and said, two, past, two verses later, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? You see, he got forsaken because you and I looked at things and wanted things that were so defiled and disgusting and Jesus wanted the ultimate beautiful thing, and he traded places with us. And so to what do we do? We gaze our eyes on the most beautiful man who ever walked the earth named Jesus Christ, and we say, that is my vindication. That is my beauty that is going to conquer pornography or emotional lust in my life. Why? Because it's more beautiful, and my eyes can gaze upon it, the Bible says. Where are your eyes today? What are they looking at? Are you wasting away in Gehenna? Or are you gazing at him who said, they are more desirable. I will desire them even when they didn't desire me. Jesus, like a marriage, what? He's all in. We're all in in marriage because it's a symbol of what Jesus did for us. If you need prayer afterwards, I'm here. I'd love to talk to you. But let's think this week, what's the most beautiful thing we're looking at this week? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is such a battle, um, but Lord, we know that you've won. Micah tells us that you are our vindication. You are the champion and the victor. So God, when we struggle and we've fallen, let not our enemies of our heart or the enemy of our soul laugh at us, but Lord, let us say we will rise because he has risen. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask that you bring us into the light to expose our hearts and that we would turn and gaze at something much more beautiful. In your name, amen.